Hello, I am René Matus. The following is my interview with Ian Deary. Ian has published many hundreds of research articles on cognitive abilities and personality traits. He has also published several books, including a textbook on personality and a very short introduction to intelligence. Among Ian's most important contributions have been the still ongoing follow-up studies of the Scottish Mental Service of 1932 and 1948, in which almost all Yes, almost all Scottish children who were 11 years old at the time set a cognitive ability test. Studying the life course and ageing of these people has led to several discoveries in the stability and change of cognitive abilities over many decades and their life course roles in health and well-being. In 2010, Ian Deary received a Distinguished Personality Psychologist Award from the European Association of Personality Psychology. We will talk about the roles of theory in individual differences psychology, about the main findings of the research on cognitive abilities, about three topics of personality research that Ian finds most interesting, and about neuroticism. Ian pushes back against my, well, admittedly somewhat provocative argument that intelligent research is currently more advanced than work on personality, and he discusses the future of the research in both areas. And as you will hear at the end of the podcast, Ian also does music. So, here we go. My interview with Ian Deary. Ian, I'm very happy to have you as a guest on our podcast for a number of reasons. One of them is that research on intelligence or cognitive abilities is the second main branch of individual differences research besides personality work. But we have not spoken a whole lot about it yet in the podcast, since I think you have been one of the key players of intelligent research over the last, what, three decades now? It only makes sense to have you to talk about the progress in that field. Another important reason that I am so pleased to have you here is actually quite personal. You are among people who have most strongly influenced my own career and thinking about scientific work. And this is not only because I did my postdoc with you, I don't think you like hand-waving and big, strong words. So regardless of whether one agrees with you, it's hard not to take it seriously what you say. Also, I think you have read widely, which often allows you to put things in a sort of wider cultural, historical perspective. So talking to you, I do generally feel like I have learned something new. Sometimes it's factual and sometimes it's a bit of wisdom, which I think is often even more important. Could we start in by you introducing yourself a little bit? Thanks, Renee. That was a kind introduction. I had an unusual route to being a psychologist. I started off as a medical laboratory technician working on hematology and blood transfusion. Then I went to medical school at the University of Edinburgh. I qualified as a doctor, practiced as a physician and surgeon, including neurosurgeon, a junior neurosurgeon. Then I moved to psychiatry, and from psychiatry I applied for a lectureship at the University of Edinburgh in psychology in 1985, and I was there uh, through my career until December 2020 when I retired. And shortly after that, I was hired back again for part-time, so I'm currently working part-time in the Department of Psychology at the University of Edinburgh. And during my time at the University of Edinburgh Psychology, I built up quite a number of colleagues around me in individual differences. And so we had a good gang, including you, of people working on individual differences in both personality and intelligence. 
I suppose the other thing that people might want to know is that during my time in the Department of Psychology, I built up a, a team working on follow-up studies of the Scottish mental surveys, which involve recruiting the, the Lothian birth cohorts. So we did a lot of work on cognitive ageing uh, using them. And for 10 years during my time at the University of Edinburgh, I was the, the head of the Centre for Cognitive Ageing and Cognitive Epidemiology. So I'd never wanted to run anything, but I ended up running a cohorts and a centre for a, a long period of time. But, but luckily, almost all of that was focused on things that I was interested in. When I think about the research, one of the most distinctive aspects that comes to my mind is that it's very, very data-driven. You have published, what, several hundreds, maybe even more than a thousand papers documenting a range of empirical regularities. But I have to say, I don't know of any grand Indiri theory of intelligence or any Indiri's grand theory of personality. In fact, I sense that you're often pretty skeptical about the state of theorizing in, in psychological research. The skepticism was one of the undertones of your 2000 book, Looking Down on Human Intelligence. It was last year, I think, you published a paper with Robert Sternberg, and it was very clear to me that one of the main points you were trying to make in this paper was that theory is overrated. If my scepticism about theory in psychology was an undertone in my book, Looking Down on Human Intelligence, then I failed because it was meant to be an overtone. Even scepticism might be too mild. I'm just very critical of theory as it appears in psychology and as it appears specifically in individual differences and even more specifically in intelligence. Now, when one says that, I mean, it's quite easy then for people to say, well, God, he's just a boring dust bowl empiricist. And, and I'm not. I mean, I think there are grown up theories in other branches of science, not just the hard sciences, in, in biology as well. I am interested in, say, intelligence and personality in the phenotypes, which, of course, involves a lot of data. I'm interested in their ability to predict variation in things that then happen subsequently. So I'm into predictive validity. I spent a lot of time as well looking uh, at mechanism. That's what I meant by looking down on human intelligence. I mean, I'm really interested in trying to explain individual differences in cognitive test scores. So I'm interested in all the things that theorists kind of say they're interested in, a prediction and phenotypic clarity. I'm interested in, in reductionism, that is understanding things in terms of more well-nailed down basic units. And I don't mean any of this as personal criticism, but if we think of names of theories like uh, the triarchic theory of intelligence, Bob Sternberg's, or Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences theory, or the process overlap theory in, in intelligence. I think none of them deserve that label. Why is that? A theory would typically be a network of constructs which people are tying together in an original way to try and predict things in terms of workout mechanism and, and predict things that will happen. I think the construct formation is sometimes lacking in terms of it's not solid what, what they mean and they haven't got good measures of it. I think the empirical associations sometimes claimed in theory aren't always there uh, solidly. And I think possibly most of all, the tying to some real things, either in 
system international units or to units in biology is lacking as well. So I think in putting together theories, people often use skyhooks rather than cranes. This is the Daniel Dennett idea that, you know, a crane is genuinely something rooted on the ground with which you can do some actual lifting. A skyhook is is just a, a promissory note. And I think a lot of theories work like that. I suppose, Renee, what I'm saying is you can't just make stuff up. You know, it's got to be tied to real things, which I think is really valuable, is empirical regularity. So, so I mean, let's write, go back to the, the beginnings of research on intelligence. I mean, Spearman in 1904, everybody knows about this, claimed on not very good samples, it has to be said, and not very good tests. I mean, a lot of it was just class results and teachers' ratings. He claimed that cognitive capabilities correlated with each other, that is, the scores from these. And that was a claimed empirical regularity. And then people started talking about Spearman's G-theory and two-factor theory. Well, was it you know, he was claiming an empirical regularity which could be proved or disproved. We don't need to go as far ahead as, as John Carroll in 1993, but by the time we got there, we, we, we knew that empirical regularity held. I think things like big samples that are really powerful and have got good subjects in them are important. I think well-operationalised variables is, is really important. That is, I really get annoyed empirically when somebody produces a sheet of paper and says, this set of questions measures this construct. I'm trying to think of a, a good example. Oh, yes, I, I did some work a long time ago on uh, measures of coping, so coping strategies. And it seemed clear to me that I, I knew some people that would take these questionnaires and believe that they measured coping. And when you looked at them, I mean, some of these variables correlated very highly on the one hand with neuroticism and some of them with conscientiousness. And it looked to me like they were sneaking in some aspect of personality trait under another, uh, another guise. It's a criticism to some that I've never bound myself to a theory of intelligence. All I've said is, here is some interesting stuff about the scores that people obtain on cognitive tests of various types and how they differ on them. And if that sounds, you know, numbingly boring, then I'm really happy because I want it to be, I want it to be neutral. I simply want to say, let's study the variation in the scores that people get on cognitive tests and see what they predict, see what aspects of the phenotypes look interesting and see if we can understand anything about the, the sources of these individual differences. I think making a practical comment on theory versus no theory, we have a fairly good example in the genetic contributions to intelligence differences. Because if you look at all those years of candidate gene studies, except for the exception of the E4 variant in apolipoprotein E gene on chromosome 19, I think it's true to say that none of the candidate gene results has actually replicated in intelligence research. But when it came to the theory-free genome-wide association studies, we've since then got replicable results. I mean, of course, they are of an entirely different 
effect size. They're, they're minute and there are thousands of them. And that's given us a whole new uh, head scratching problem about intelligence variation. But on the other hand, it was the atheoretical thing that, that worked. OK, I'm going to say it worked because it gave us replicable results. And it was the theory driven thing that, that, that gave us a whole load of unreplicable stuff. Is there any hope that things will get better? Because the effect sizes won't get bigger, probably, right? If anything, they will get smaller as we as we do more and more research, robust research that is replicable and so on in big samples. The effect sizes generally tend to get smaller and smaller. Yeah, there was that recent paper saying we've got to get used to uh, small small effect sizes too. I mean, I think we already have the the lead on that because if one looks at the GWAS on human height it's now into the millions uh, and we know that that's exactly what's happening is there are even more common variants with even smaller effect sizes i have to say that i've not fully formed my thinking about that except to to, to say that my goodness that's going to be a really really tricky if even tractable reductionistic process in terms of understanding unless there's a level of description at which many many of these variants come together in say gene systems then it's going to be difficult to get a handle and i know some people are more optimistic about that than i am in terms of saying that's what will happen we'll, we'll discover a level at say gene systems or protein expression that kind of thing where we can get a handle on on these many, many uh, genetic things. But yeah, it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite tricky. Do you think it's going to be different at the phenotypic level if we have these different constructs and we actually will manage to measure them properly and distinguishably from one another? We will have effect sizes that are strong enough to build theories around them. I think that comes back to what I was saying about empirical regularities, because when, when we look at cognitive test scores, there are a lot of interesting things which have flowed from that. And I think with regard to personality trait differences, that is the scores we get on personality tests, a lot of interesting empirical regularities have come from that. On the other hand, I don't think that's an easy thing. When you say, if we get better phenotypes, will we understand them better? We don't have that many very good phenotypes, and I wouldn't be holding my breath for any more suddenly to, to, to come along. I'm totally with you about the theories. I, I know the temptation is there, right? Because if you want to make a great career and, and make yourself a name, then the best way to do this probably is to come up with a grand theory, which people will pay attention to inside. And yet it might not be the best thing for the good of science overall. Yeah, you, you dangled that very tasty bit of bait in front of me earlier about the grand uh, theory I might have come up with. And, and, and in my rambling, I, I failed to answer it properly. I actually dislike enormously theories being associated with a person because I think science is just more neutral than that. We're trying to discover and understand and predict what's out there in nature. And it doesn't matter a damn who, who discovers it. And, and so we should get away from that. And people should be uh, much less possessive and defensive about their theories. I mean, I've been following this stuff on the scout mindset, and, and that's supposed to be a state of mind where you actually get into the mode of thinking, okay, how could I be wrong? Now, we know other people thought that. I mean, Karl Popper and Richard Feynman thought that as well. We should try and prove how we're wrong, but it's not really what a lot of people like to do. And as I say, I'd like to get away from 
names being associated with even discoveries, let alone let alone theories. But but priority seems to be such a big thing, and people do get so defensive about the theories, especially theories of intelligence. So that would be nice to get away from that and just say, look, what are the big regularities, and and, and can they help us understand things better? Okay, let's talk about these regularities. You have also written a popular entry-level book on intelligence, a very short introduction to intelligence. And that book, do is very, very data-driven, focusing on some of the most robust empirical findings that intelligence researchers have documented over the last decades. And since I think some of our listeners may not be that familiar with intelligence research, could you perhaps describe some of the findings that you present there and that you find most robust and interesting and worthwhile of talking about? Yeah, this is my book called Intelligence, a a very short introduction. It's in that Oxford University Press series, which now runs to many hundreds of books on on different topics. Mine was actually number 39, so it was fairly early on. And I think that's how I managed to sneak past them, a very unusual book, because the format of it isn't like any of the other books I've seen. I I came to them originally and, and said, what I want to do in, in this uh, area that you know, one of the first adjectives that comes up is controversial. And I wanted it to be non-controversial. So what I wanted to, to do was I wanted to take topics that I thought people would be reasonably interested in. And so I've now got 10 chapters and I, I actually could call it just 10 quite interesting things about intelligence test scores. And I wanted to take people very close to the data. I try and look, first of all, at how many types of intelligence there are. So this is the argument between there being multiple intelligences and there being a general cognitive ability. Uh, And the answer to that is that that there's both and there's probably something in between uh, as well. The next thing I look at, number two, is what happens to intelligence as we grow older. And there again, it depends what type of cognitive ability you're looking at, insofar as the best data we have show that some decline uh, from early adulthood onwards and others stay uh, less uh, declining than that uh, over the thing. Chapter three is on uh, sex differences in intelligence. And I would never have gone near this topic had it not been for the fact that we in Scotland had whole population uh, data. And the answer with regard to general cognitivity is that there are no differences in average oblique mean scores between uh, males and and females, although there are some interesting differences in, in variation. Chapter four, we look at genetics and environment. And uh, there, the best studies I could find there showed that with regard to twin data sets, it looked like uh, genetic factors contributed some of the variation in people's cognitive test scores and so did environments, but particularly the individual environment that wasn't shared with members of the, the rearing family. And also a wee bit of a survey of some of the more recent genome-wide association studies, which do show some hits along the chromosomes for intelligence test scores, but it accounts for less variation than the twin model, which is interesting in itself. And also we find that there are probably thousands of hits making the, as I said earlier, the mechanistic understanding uh, almost intractable in terms of our current ability to, to research that. In chapter five, I look at whether smarter people are faster on very simple things like reaction time uh, devices and inspection time, which is a psychophysical test. And the answer is yes, they are. And do we understand it? No, not yet. Is that is that? And by the way, I published my first publication on inspection time in 1982. That's four decades and we still don't uh, understand it. So that's going to go 
for, for a while uh, longer. In chapter six, we look at whether brains are associated with intelligence, which is kind of an interesting thing to, to, to ask. And there is a small association between overall brain size and intelligence test scores among healthy adults. It's probably no higher than about 0.28, so it doesn't account for that much variation. And we don't understand the nature of the association. There are also some associations between the health of the white matter, the connecting fibres in the brain, and the correlation is not even as high as that. So we've got some association, but it's small. In chapter seven, I looked at whether intelligence differences contributed prospectively to people's educational outcomes and their performance and attainment in the workplace. The answer is yes. In fact, to my, to my astonishment, one of my most highly cited articles beyond the, the personality traits book is the study I published on intelligence on uh, intelligence and educational outcomes where we looked at a, a very large number. So, so getting into five figures uh, of children at age 11 on cognitive ability tests and their GCSEs. These are the national examinations in England at about age 16. And we found a very high association. So there is an association there. And again, people who score higher on cognitive ability tend to have better work performance ratings and attain higher social class graded uh, occupations uh, as, as well. These, these correlations are not enormous, but they're as high as some other uh, predictors of workplace performance. With regard to chapter eight, I look at whether intelligence test scores from childhood and young adulthood predict health and uh, how long people live. And the answer is yes. And, and that's probably the only discovery I would probably claim, along with my pal Lawrence Wally, when we found that childhood intelligence test scores in a Scottish sample predicted whether people lived up to their mid-70s, a, a finding that's been replicated in many countries and, and huge samples around the place. And, and we don't still fully understand that, but it's probably the thing in the last 20 years that's a, a reasonably big new discovery about the predictive validity of, of intelligence uh, test scores. Chapter nine is about the Flynn effect, the fact that intelligence test scores seem to increase generation after generation in the latter half of the 20th century. And chapter 10 is kind of a cheat. The empirical regularity I look at there is whether psychologists of different predispositions actually agree about what the regularities are in intelligence test research. So it's like a meta-regularity. And the answer is yes. If you crack heads together and get them to look at the data, they will largely agree that, that there are some regularities. And all of that has led me to say, and I wasn't the first person to say this, but I think it's true that intelligence test scores might be the hub that contains the largest set of empirical regularities in the whole of psychology. I'd be interested to hear if any other variable has got a nomological network that's quite as well crocheted together as intelligence test scores. I, I teach intelligence and that's often how I start the courses. I, I, I make this argument that this is one field in psychology that punches above its weight in the sense that it's a very small field. If you look at the conference where intelligence researchers come together, it's like less than 100 people. Uh, and yet, if you look at the impact this research has had on the society, it's probably 
been one of the most influential fields of psychology, given that how intelligence testing, for example, has reshaped the structure of society in various places. I, I agree with that. But one of the, the, the little sort of uh, navel-gazing things I came up with in looking down in human intelligence, I saw a problem with the actual cognitive tests themselves. That is, they're so easy to measure on the face of it and so easy for other people just to start using. People don't think you need much expertise. And so if you look at the world of economics, the world of medicine, including the world of epidemiology, look at all the big cohorts around the world. As you know, many of them now have cognitive tests. I've come across many cohorts and consortia that don't really have an expert on the psychometric characteristics of these cognitive tests because they see them as something they can just pick up fairly easily. It's the same true actually for the big five now that it's become a sort of thing that people don't really think about it anymore. They just use it and think that, oh, we've measured the big five, hence we measured personality and, and people in other fields are taking these as just variables. For example, when we look at the genetics of personality, it's None of the big papers has been published in, in any of the personality journals. And, and it's all about done mostly research by geneticists for genetics journals. Going way back to a conference of the European Association for Personality Psychology, the one in, in uh, Ghent, there was a super symposium that Paul Costa spoke at, and so did uh, Lou Goldberg. And on the one hand, Paul Costa was arguing, as I recall it, for the measures, this is the Neo-PIR and its fellow measures with regard to the, the Big Five should be licensed and it should be that psychologists are able to purchase them and use them in a, in a bona fide way and that they should be protected. But on the other hand, on the, on the EPIP uh, thing, the, the, Lou Goldberg was arguing that they should just be you know, available to everybody and, and we know they are. So the EPIP philosophy behind it was almost that you know these things should be going out to the diaspora for, for use in various studies. And on the other hand, the, the neo-PIR would be keeping the things closer to psychologists. And I can see strengths of both sides. That's a, a discussion that's in the individual differences community about cl how closely we should be keeping these variables and, and looking over them as, as if we're some kind of a trade guild, you know, from the, from, from, from the old days. This democratizing of our tools is also something that I sometimes think is, is a problem for things like, for example, the statistical packages, which are so widely distributed and so easy to use now that the temptation to use them is, is bigger than our necessarily our uh, willingness to learn about the details. That's a really good point, Renee, because when I first started doing a structural equation modeling in, in 1990, you using EQS, Peter Bentler's thing, I had to write every line of code myself. I never imported anything. And so you, you knew it inside out. And I do worry now if people are importing vast swathes of code, you know, just how much they've They've understood it. And it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, you don't want everybody to, to, to have to build their own computer or their own motor car just now from, from, from scratch so that they understand that you've got to take some things on trust, but there's a, there's a penalty on, on, on both sides. You said that your most cited item is the personality textbook. So what things, what findings, what research topics about personality you find most interesting? I've always been interested in the emergence of an idea of an adequate taxonomy of personality traits right from the beginning. And, and your listeners will probably know that the, 
the first uh, discovery of, of the Big Five was actually in Spearman's laboratory in, in 1959, uh, 1915 by, by Edward Webb. Now, they didn't realise they'd discovered it. I, I reanalyzed their data in the mid-1990s and published a paper showing that uh, they had actually discovered a, a, a five or maybe six uh, factor model of personality. And at the time, I was too naive not to do something like this. And so I, I wrote to all the bigwigs in personality research around the world to see if they agreed with me uh, in, in my revision of the paper. And they pretty much all did. And I have, amongst other things, a wonderful letter from Raymond Cattell uh, from that time and giving me his, his opinion. But of course, uh, where, where others agreed about it, uh, Professor Cattell thought I'd, I'd probably boiled it down to too few uh, factors rather than that. So the number and nature of those personality traits and what they leave out and how important that is, that is has interested me. The, the second thing I find fascinating is to what extent we can think of what's called personality psychopathology or abnormal personality as describable on the same dimensions as normal personality variation. I started lecturing this in the late 1980s in Edinburgh, when in fact there were only a few voices saying that probably we should bring these things together. And as I went on year after year, it became commoner and commoner and commoner, such that DSM now has a, a, a section on the continuum of personality. But I'm absolutely fascinated by, on the one hand, the, the clinical categories of personality disorder, and on the other hand, the dimensions of normal personality, and whether in fact those need to be brought together or whether there are still some remaining things about personality pathology that need their separate description. So for example, to use some of my clinical observations, it doesn't take long to practice in psychiatry to see that you understand what people mean when they talk about so-called borderline personality characteristics on the one hand and sociopathic or antisocial personality characteristics on the other. In other words, these are highly either self or other destructive behaviours. And it, it would be easy to push me into a corner and say, do you think the big five really accounts for this type of variation? And I would find it quite hard to say that, you know, if you if you said, and, and as we discovered at one time, if borderline person, personality disorder is associated with, for example, high neuroticism, low agreeableness, etc., does that really get at the the thing that looks, you know, difficult in those clinical cases, I would, I would find that tricky to say. So I think the the normal, abnormal thing is is really interesting. The third thing that interests me is the understanding of personality traits in terms of biology. And I have to stress, I think this is a two-way thing. That is, I'm not assuming that the personality traits are the right traits. Now, that will annoy some people, it's not meant to. I'm just simply saying it's a two-way street. That is, knowing about the biology of characterological dispositions could help us indicate which the right taxonomy is. And the other way around, getting a decent taxonomy could give us variables to go and study biologically. So I think that's an iterative process. Sometimes people see it one way, that is, we've discovered the, the traits, let's go and look for their biological basis. I would say that so far, what I know, and I'm not absolutely up to date on this, but both with regard to the brain imaging 
associations on the one hand of personality traits, including the five factor model personality traits, there's, there's, there's little there. I mean, even in comparison with intelligence test scores, which, which hasn't got a lot, but it hasn't even got those solid 0.2 to 0.3 associations. And on the other hand, when one looks at the genetic studies, for example, the, the GWASs, we're not talking much beyond, say, 10% of variation from common single nucleotide polymorphisms, plus or minus a, a few percent. And I don't remember any individual contributions to those uh, genetic variants that, that are leading towards mechanism. If you were to push me and say, OK, if you were starting your career again just now and you were just studying uh, personality traits, what would you study? I would probably say I would go after neuroticism because I think it's a personality trait associated with so much human distress across many apparent clinical states, anxiety, depression, other things too, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we've seen that with regard to molecular genetics, the last I remember is that the genetic correlation between neuroticism and major depressive disorder is north of about 0.8. And so I think that's a big juicy thing for people to get their, their teeth into. Although there's still a worry that the questions in neuroticism might have construct overlap with things like you know, major depressive disorders. I think these fields of personality and intelligence research have been quite separate. I don't know exactly why this has been the case, but it seems to me that a lot of personality researchers don't know a whole lot of what is going on in intelligence research and the other way around. But when I look at these two fields, it is my impression that uh, intelligence research feels somewhat more scientific, more advanced. Maybe because the constructs are more refined there. Maybe because the research questions are more focused on specific problems. Maybe because there has been more data available over time, which people have gone back to different researchers have looked at the same data in different ways and, and, and pursued one specific research question more thoroughly. I guess in a way uh, that you suggested that we should pursue the neuroticist mental health association more thoroughly. What do you think? Why first are these two fields somewhat different? And do you agree with me that one of them seems a little more advanced in some ways? One time there was a, what I think might have been a rather more British attitude, which was that if you were a differential psychologist, you, you looked at personality and intelligence and that perhaps that wasn't so much the case elsewhere. But let me have a go at your question. I, th I think it's an interesting one to hear from you that you've got those opinions. And maybe on the one hand, it could be to do with the fact that with regard to cognitive capabilities, that's measured objectively by performance. In other words, it's whether you get things right or wrong on cognitive tests. And on the other hand, in personality traits, it's almost always done by self-report, sometimes by other report, and there hasn't been much success in getting behavioral indicators of personality. And the problem, or a problem with self-report is that once you do that, I mean, it's, it's too easy to have a field that then is polluted with lots and lots of papers that look at self-report measures versus other self-report measures, 
and you get things like construct overlap and all that, and that kind of muddies the water a bit. So on the one hand, I think the performance indicator in one versus the self-report on the other. I think another thing is that although we recognise that there's variation in cognitive ability in terms of general cognitive ability, in terms of domains of cognitive function, and in terms of individual tests, if you look at a big set of cognitive tests and a fairly healthy population, about 40% of the variation is on general cognitive ability. So that gives you one thing to look at. And a lot of people simply take the overall score from a cognitive ability test. So it means that in one field, you've, you've got a lot of people just relying on one thing. And so they study that. Whereas, obviously, if you're studying the five-factor model, you've got five things. I mean, of those, I find neuroticism really interesting. I would say that extroversion is such an obvious human difference that that's quite exciting. Conscientiousness has got this association with survival, which I think must be really interesting. Uh, and when it comes to, for example, openness, I always worry about the fact that it's correlated with cognitive ability, especially crystallized intelligence. I'm, I'm never utterly convinced that openness is, is, is a good uh, research area to, to, to go into. But anyway, we both agree that neuroticism is really predictive of mental health, but intelligence predicts so much. Now, I don't mean it predicts perfectly. I mean, it explains population variation in education and health and the workplace and that sort of thing. It's got correlations with brain size. It's got some genetic contribution that's far bigger than personality. I think, Renee, it could be a happenstance that the results from cognitive ability just happen to be that bit stronger. I mean, I don't think that says an area that's more advanced than another. I just say it's a happenstance of the results as they are out there, and they just happen to be a bit more solid and a bit more more of them. So I'm not sure I've gone along with your uh, initial initial advanced thing. I, I just think maybe just one's a bit more solid just now than the other. That's fair enough. I guess one hypothesis that I might have is also that personality is sort of closer to people's lay theories about how psychological processes work. And so it's kind of harder to distinguish between our lay theories, which you know might be correct or might not be correct from solid empirical findings. And so it kind of muddies the picture a little. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I'm thinking back to, you know, student lectures I gave for many years on personality and intelligence. Everybody liked the personality lectures better than intelligence lectures, no matter how equal you tried to be in your entertainingness. And, and certainly when I give public talks on personality, there's always much bigger interest in personality. Okay, so what do you think are the most next most critical uh, achievements or steps that either personality research on the one hand or intelligence research on the other hand should take to make real progress? I think there are some obvious things that should be done and that to some extent are being done. I think big data or massive data is really, really important. I'm not just talking about replication crisis. I'm talking about the fact that once you've got a big cohort, and I, I used to think hundreds was a big cohort, then I thought thousands was a big cohort, and now I think hundreds of thousands is a decent-sized cohort. Once you've got you know, UK uh, Biobank, and I should mention your Estonian Biobank, that's the kind of size that we should be thinking about for our field. Obviously, you can't do that for 
you know, detailed mechanistic studies, although UK biobanks, you know, planning the brain image, 100,000 people. It makes you think back to the days when people were publishing with, say, a dozen or, or 20 brain images and saying, well, it costs so much, we, we still have to publish. Well, no, you don't. I mean, you, you, you have to wait until you can take a, a much bigger sample than, than that. I think next steps, too, are really good me measurement of, of constructs. And that's where I think some of these big data things don't always do all that well. They often try and get away with very, very brief uh, measures of things. I don't want to criticise anyone, but you just have to look around at some of the really big cohorts around the world and how they've, you know, they've set up multi, multi, multi-million pound cohorts and then skimped uh, on, on some of the, the variables that you and I would find uh, most important. And I think what you then go after is, once you've got really good data with variables that you think are good, you do what you should do. You, you collect the right variables for prediction. In other words, you, you think as broadly as you can about what they would predict with regard to human variation after they've been collected. And then you go after a mechanism. And I'm going to say that you would then these days collect genetic data, whether in the setting of a twin study or molecular genetics on the one hand, and brain imaging because we're talking about psychological variables on the other, but not missing out measures of the rest of the body. But I would also like to say that we should be collecting far, far better data on the life course of the environment for, with regard to individuals. Now, I happen to know that some people are trying to put together something along those lines. It just seems really difficult, but it's huge. The missing ability to measure really well you know the, the the life course of people's environment and how it contributes towards the uh, the variation and then, now of course we know that over the life course it's not about the environment contributing so much variation and genes contributing the, the the other part of it it's this dynamic association through the life course with things like gene environment correlation etc and and so the, the interweaving which i'm not expert in so it's yeah, it's collecting much more comprehensive data than 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 we would usually think about. Finally, and I would like to talk about music. Besides writing hundreds of papers and books, book chapters, you've also been doing music, and I know that you've been doing this for uh, decades now. Could you say briefly what have you learned from that? Uh, the band is called Dancing Mice, and I'll take it as a measure of, of how wide the podcast of EAPP is reaching to see how our Spotify numbers go up in the, in, in the next wee while. Yeah, it's, it's an odd thing whereby the, the three chaps I play with are good musicians, and I'm the singer and, and saxophonist, although I'm not a, a trained musician, but I also write songs for them. So what happens is that the, the other three will come up with usually a chord sequence, and I will then write the, the vocal melody and the words. And then we record it. And we've now had eight albums. We're working on our ninth album. It's meant to be fun. But in fact, once you've been given a backing tune, a chord sequence to work on, you've then got to come up with a set of lyrics and a tune that are good. And you have to go in and start singing this completely new tune with three of the most critical people I've, I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And uh, it's usually absolutely fine. But it's it's a fairly, I mean, pleasantly stressful experience to, to, to come up with. And we have a bit of a fan base. I enjoy 
performing with them. We play live gigs and I've never found that much different from giving a lecture in terms of the, the aim there is to know your material and try and engage your audience. And at the end of it, you know, send them away thinking, OK, that was pretty good. And they, on the one hand, having learned something and the other hand, having enjoyed something and, and possibly a bit of a bit of both. If we wanted to end this podcast with one of the Dancing My songs, which one should we pick? You should play It's Abnormal. We've had a few things played on the BBC, but it was played on BBC Six Music when it came out. And it's probably been the closest thing to, to a hit we've ever had. So It's Abnormal. And it also sounds a bit psychological. Thanks, Ian. As ever, it was great talking to you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I asked my friends and they said they agreed That you are nothing special I got on my knees, cried like an animal I beg like a drunk, your power is terrible Cause and effect, I can't understand What am I waiting for, only more pain